Hello and good afternoon everybody and welcome back to another edition of the Mike Sports Roundup here on WSJU Radio, live on iHeartRadio. I'm your host, of course, Michael Zabo. Uh, before we get started today, uh, after we've had our little break last week, sorry we could not be on due to broadcasting uh, scheduling conflicts. Uh, I was out on Long Island broadcasting a couple of games, so weren't on to talk about the bracket and uh, my bracket predictions for the NCAA tournament. Spoiler alert, probably like all of yours, it has been absolutely broken up, down, sideways, every which way throughout the first couple of days in the NCAA tournament. Um, we'll talk a lot about that in a great action-packed first couple of days uh, of March Madness. We'll talk about Major League Baseball as spring training gets underway a little bit later on. But before we start, uh, make sure to follow my Twitter page at underscore Mike Sport, uh, M Sports Roundup and my Instagram page, uh, Michael underscore Zabo, to follow all the updates regarding our shows and when they're posted to their podcast platforms. You can follow this show also um, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as live here on WSJU Radio every Monday from 1 to 2 p.m. So let's get this underway. we got two guests coming on today, some of our prospective members. we got Gianni, we got Jason coming on, both freshmen. Uh, starting to come into their own here and come into WSJU Radio. Glad to have you guys on. How are you guys doing? Doing good, doing good. Doing good. How are you? So you guys both, were t- we were both talking before, and we were all going through the NCAA tournament. You know, Gianni, you were making a bracket, following it a lot more. Um, so what do we make of the first couple of days of the tournament? Well, a lot of surprises. Well, not really surprises, but St. Peter's, obviously. Nobody expected that. a big so. star. Yeah, nobody expected them to make that run that they've made. Uh, another surprising team, I'd say, in the tournament, as in, like, disappointing, I'd probably say Kentucky was definitely disappointing because they lost to St. Peter's. Uh, another, and, yeah, I mean, I think Arizona's had a pretty bad start to the tournament, even though they've won a couple games. Yeah, that game last night against TCU really gave everybody on their bracket, including me, who has Arizona going all the way. A little bit of nerves and probably a little bit of trepidation and pullback on on will Tommy Lloyd actually take this team all the way in his first year. Uh, they'll go up against uh, Houston in the Sweet 16, who just took down Illinois. But you mentioned St. Peter's, obviously now this great run that they're on under Shanine Holloway this season. Run, ran the table through the MAC tournament to get to this point. And then got two NCAA tournament, the only two NCAA tournament wins they've ever had in school history. Here today, they take down uh, number two seed Kentucky, and in overtime, and then took down uh, number seven seed Murray State, uh, seventy to sixty, on Saturday night. I mean, just what a run! Uh, this is what March Man- the beauty of March Madness is. This is now consecutive years where we're having a fifteen seed upset. We had uh, Oral Roberts last year. Now it's St. Peter's. Um, uh, it's just amazing stuff, and to pour more salt uh, uh, on the wounds of uh, St. John's basketball fans out there for how this season has gone, this was a team that St. John's beat by 21 in the second game of the season. And here they are now. They made a run and are in the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament. Um, And Shanine Holloway, I mean, we saw the news with Kevin Willard this morning. He's been constantly getting connected. Uh, to the seat and hall job, certainly we'll be getting plenty of offers from around the country. Um, but Kevin Willard name dropping him in his press conference after Seton Hall's 
loss on Friday, first round loss on Friday night to TCU. So we'll see how that situation develops in the next uh, couple of days and weeks as Kevin Willard uh, goes uh, to Maryland, uh, leaving Seton Hall after 12 years, which what a job he did, whether you love him or hate him. Um, and also Travis Steele around the Big East, Travis Steele also with uh, Xavier leaving and Sean Miller um, coming in on just a quick recap on the coaching rounds. But uh, we also had some uh, some other upsets. Iowa State coming into the Sweet 16. I don't think many people expected that. I think the 6-11 upset wasn't super surprising. LSU going through a lot of off-the-court issues. Will Wade being fired right before the tournament maybe affected them. Uh, Iowa State really able to put together a good defensive performance and uh, um, get through. Um, and I think it was quite shocking. Uh, they beat um, Wisconsin. That was right. Uh, Wisconsin was one I, I thought making this bracket that they could have potentially made a run to this Final Four, but then just fell late. Yeah, I think specifically the Midwest. It was just they had a not a tough. No, I mean I wouldn't say easy, but they had a they a couple things went right for them. They had a pretty easy way to the Final Four. Kind of just didn't make it there. Yeah, it's uh, that region right there in the Midwest that John Rothstein labeled it in his uh, March Madness bracket preview as the region of vulnerability, and that struck quite a bit on that side of the bracket. It's really only uh, Kansas coming unscathed out of that region so far. Providence, who was a massive upset pick, just to pivot to the Big East a little bit here. Uh, many people had Providence getting upset in a 4-13 game against South Dakota State with the Jackrabbits' fantastic three-point shooting uh, this year and how Providence tends to live on the edge in terms of their wins this season and pull out close wins. Uh, but Providence, uh, I guess, sort of proved everybody wrong since despite them being a four-seed, as Ed Cooley and a lot of the players were saying, it felt like they proved something to the rest of the world. Uh, and They not only knocked off the Jackrabbits, they also beat the Richmond Spiders, who upset Iowa in the 5-12 game on, on, in that region, and Providence will have a date with Kansas later this week in their first Sweet 16 matchup since 1997. So the rest of the Big East, the Big East came in with six teams into this uh, NCAA tournament, uh, now going into the Sweet 16 with just two. Villanova, of course, year in, year out, once again carrying the banner of the Big East throughout this tournament. But now are also joined by Providence, which is good to see after UConn and Seton Hall lost in the first round. Marquette as well lost, uh, got dominated uh, by North Carolina in the 8-9 game. And then uh, you had Creighton valiantly uh, fall in the second round to Kansas after uh, Ryan Cockbrenner went down with, a, uh, uh, with an injury in there, win over San Diego State. Give credit to them having Ryan Nemhard and, and Cockbrenner out. Creighton pushed Kansas to the limit, um, but unable to pull out uh, the win. And Kansas moves on. We'll take on a fellow Big East foe in the Providence Friars in, uh, in the next couple of days. Um, but guys, on the other side, we had a, a number one seed, the, the, first, the, the only number one seed so far in this uh, bracket to fall in Baylor to North Carolina. I was I I didn't have much confidence in Baylor this year, but I thought they would at least make it to Sweet Sixteen. Yeah, it is kind of shocking. The defending national champions being dumped in the second in the round of thirty-two 
um, just uh, pro just too much injuries for Scott Drew and and that uh, and that squad to really overcome toward the end. I mean, give credit to North Carolina and Hubert Davis. So much criticism, uh, so much pressure and shoes to fill uh, in the wake of the retirement of Roy Williams last year. Uh, many people doubting whether uh, Davis is going to be the guy. Uh, the Tar Heels had a very uneven regular season, but then just ripped off a massive run uh, through February and, and early March. And then, of course, got uh, the signature uh, win over Duke on Coach K's last game at Cameron Indoor, um, which will spite uh, Duke fans for years to come. Um, so he earned a big nod there, Hubert Davis, and then is taking this team now through the Sweet 16. They nearly blew a 25-point lead, but still was able to pull it out. That's another reason you got to give Baylor a lot of credit. They were down 25, and they came back and pushed it to overtime. They ended up losing anyway, but that game could have been over very, very early, and it certainly looked that way. And plenty of storylines in that game, too, that Brady Manick, who was absolutely on fire in that game, gets ejected uh, on a flagrant two foul and an elbow um, to the face. I forget which Baylor player it was. Uh, they called him on an elbow, and uh, they ejected uh, Manic out of the game. And at, from that point forward, Baylor just went on a furious rally to force overtime. Um, a controversial moment from that game. And it feels like in this NCAA tournament more than most, it's that officiating has become a storyline, whether it affects the game or not. There always seems to be these calls this weekend that many uh, that affects the game whether whether I mean that call on uh, on North Carolina could have seriously changed the outcome if Baylor's able to pull that out. Um, just even making that game close clearly Manic's uh, impact or lack of presence after he got uh, ejected was clearly felt, and Baylor nearly pulled off the largest comeback in NCAA history. So there was that call, and then there was the call against. Uh, um, against uh, TCU in the TCU-Arizona game right at the end of regulation uh, as Mike Miles Jr. was trying to set up a final play. He's, he's getting trapped, trying to circle uh, back. He's very close to the mid-court line. Um, then he gets bumped, causes him to lose the ball. Then Arizona, I, I don't know why, Daylon Terry was going for a dunk on a buzzer beater. Uh, with you got to have awareness of how much time is left. All you could have done was just threw up a floater or, or a layup or something rather than go point blank in to dunk. You didn't have enough time. Instead, would have been over in regulation. Yes, they still get uh, still got the win, but the storyline was certainly that that should have been a foul on Mike Miles Jr. And kept on watching the video over and over. And as much as I, I'm one in, in bas when watching basketball, I, I like contact more and it not to be called for fouls. I, I feel like nowadays, in, in whether it's college basketball or the NBA, there, there's some the threshold for what's a foul or not has come down significantly in recent years. I don't love that all the time, but those the, that situation that you saw there with Mike Miles Jr. Like, that's a foul that gets called often, and that would have put TCU at the line. A tie game just had to sink two, and they probably would have won it with the time that was left. Uh, was, by the time the ball was stolen, there was about two seconds or so on the clock, so those two free throws probably would have sealed the game in a massive upset in the tournament. So I think officiating was a little bit more of a storyline than people would have liked in this game, in this tournament so far. But yeah, I mean, we'll move on. I think uh, we touched on Iowa before. Um, 
The other Big Ten kind of disappointment was Illinois. Uh, once again, the Big Ten, it, we always watch the Big Ten throughout the regular season, and it looks like this great dominating conference, and you can't wait till uh, it comes to, for March Madness, and you're thinking several Big Ten teams might make a run to Sweet 16, Elite Eights, Final Four. I, I believe it was last year or a couple years ago, they thought the the Big Ten would have the kind of year that the Big East had in 1985 and have pretty much an all-Big Ten Final Four, three out of the four, and it wasn't even close. Uh, I think only Iowa got to the Elite Eight with the Luca Garza and company. Um, so you've seen this this conference in the past couple of years completely underperform. Illinois is the epitome of that, and in a very winnable game against Houston, who only won one quad one game this year, uh, I thought they really could have won that and and advanced to this game against Arizona in the Sweet 16. They didn't pull it out, and once again, Illinois showed they come up short in late, close late game situations. If you guys have anything else to add on the tournament, I know Michigan, uh, 11 seed there also. Um, I think I had Michigan upsetting uh, Colorado State in the first round, but I thought it was quite a bit of a shock that they upset Tennessee as well to advance to the Sweet 16 uh, matchup against uh, Villanova. The thing with Michigan is they always make you kind of run. Like you kind of see it every year where it's just like, you don't think they're going to go really far? You don't think they have that great of a team? And then you always see them in the Sweet 16. And that would be a pretty good matchup with Villanova. It'll be pretty interesting. I think they, they match up kind of well. I, I really like the matchup we'll have in the post. Eric Dixon against uh, Hunter Dickinson. Uh, the guard matchup will be interesting. Eli Brooks, the more experienced of the bunch, uh, against the super veteran Colin Gillespie. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot, a, a lot of interesting matchups. Um, I think Jordan Howard has done a good job as coach also with Michigan. Yeah, it's it, well, that spans a couple of coaches. Um, this is, I believe, this is Howard's second year, and they've now made two straight Sweet 16s. And it, I mean, it's been fantastic. And for all the turmoil that there's been, give Jawan Howard credit, give that team credit after the whole debacle at Wisconsin. Uh, he gets a five game suspension. Stuff like that can really derail uh, a team's season, and especially right where Michigan were, right on the bubble. It could have really derailed the, the final part of their regular season, and instead they came out through it stronger, squeaked into the tournament, and now ripped off a couple of wins and are once again into the Sweet 16. Many teams who, uh, many people thought this team didn't belong in the selection field based on their resume, and yet again they get in and proved why they belonged, win two games, and they'll be taking on Villanova also later this week. So. We've kind of spurred it around all over the bracket, but the Sweet 16 uh, will have a couple of days off from this wild four days of action that started last Thursday. And uh, this upcoming Thursday, the tournament will get back underway with the Sweet 16. It will be Gonzaga and Arkansas, Duke and Texas Tech um, on the uh, top part of the bracket. Uh, you have UCLA and North Carolina on the bottom, then Purdue and St. Peter's, the matchup that nobody ever predicted. And then Miami and Ohio and Iowa State. Miami upsetting, shockingly upsetting Auburn uh, this weekend. Then you have Kansas and Providence, Michigan and Villanova that we touched on. And, of course, Arizona and Houston. That's your Sweet 16 field. Guys, we did brackets. It's not working out. Let's do a, a short, condensed version. 
Uh, who do you think is going to advance? I know, uh, I know, Gianni, you said you have Kansas as your national champion going all the way. Yeah. Um, so what else are, are we looking for? I know you said Kansas and UCLA is your title matchup, which uh, that's the first I've heard. Uh, that's a unique matchup that I've heard of anybody I've talked to about this tournament with. Yeah, specifically with UCLA, I just feel like they have pretty much the same team from last year. The same time around, they have their, their star Johnny Guzan, I believe, is, mm -hmm. he's come back and he's, I mean, he's just as good as he was last year. They were in it all the way with Gonzaga in mm -hmm. that, uh, that Final Four game, I believe it was, until yep. the last second shot against Jaden Suggs. I thought, like, that was a great team last year. It was a great tournament team. I know that's a phrase that gets brought up a bunch. And it's like, what is that really? But that's that's what UCLA is. They're a great team in big moments and big clutch games. I feel like that this is uh, this is a year that they can do it. As Mick Cronin described it, it's great to be in a spot where they're at, they're at a level of progression. Uh, they're starting off at a level of progression better than where they were last year. A higher floor where they started off of hoping for a bigger ceiling. Uh, you mentioned uh, Johnny Juzang, uh, of course Tiger Campbell um, as well has been a huge part of their success. That entire team from last year, Cody Riley. Uh, as well, Jaime Jaquez, uh, all of them still there, all of them from last year. So uh, in a matchup of uh, with North Carolina, uh, of both two experienced to veteran teams, uh, they got a lot of veteran pieces around that squad, should be an interesting one in there. I like Duke to continue to advance. Duke and Gonzaga, I'd like to advance on that side. Uh, I'll go with you. I think UCLA will advance past North Carolina, then uh, Purdue will end the Cinderella run of St. Peter's. Uh, then Iowa State-Miami, I think that's an uh, a fascinating uh, double-digit seed matchup. Um, I'll go Miami in that one. I, I think they can pull that uh, one out. I'll go Kansas over Providence, uh, Villanova, and then Arizona on that top part of the bracket to come out and move into the Elite Eight. Uh, should be a really interesting uh, week coming up of NCAA tournament action as the tournament continues uh, to get underway. We'll talk about that a little bit more on next week's edition as we move on now over to Major League Baseball. As uh, Major League Baseball now, we've got an over-the-lockout drama, all the labor disputes finally after so, oh, so many delays, so many setbacks, so many times where we thought there was a deal coming. We had that big a uh, splurge of news right before the deadline. We thought a deal was going to come, didn't happen. Everything back and forth. How many games uh, Games were starting to be canceled, but they all figured it out. They're still going to have 162 games. We're getting spring training started off a little bit later than normal, but the main part is the season's going on uh, just about as we expected. Uh, we'll get a little bit into the moves that the Yankees have made um, and also... Uh, Yankees, Mets, and some general uh, moves around uh, the market. Uh, let's talk about the Yankees first, and they made a big trade. Um, we talked about how this team, I've talked about on this show, this team really needs to shake it up. Um, uh, oh, this was way back when. I mean, this is back last semester because we haven't even touched on baseball most recently thanks to the lockout as much. But the Yankees needed a shakeup. If they're going to be successful this year, uh, you can't just run uh, run the team back and expect there for there to automatically uh, be better results. I get certain guys underperformed and they're counting for them to get better, but 
uh, they can't just uh, count on that alone. And it was interesting, the guys they shook up. I mean, Gary Sanchez was thought at one point when he first came up to be the future catcher of this team long term. And for a time in 2017, he looked the part. And then it all started to go downhill, whether it was um, inconsistent performances or injuries. A combination of both led to that. Uh, I've said before I've wanted uh, uh, Sanchez to be traded. His defense not good behind the plate. Keeps on getting injured too much. Uh, I think they just needed to move on from him. I'm sort of surprised that they did do it just because of how much uh, the organization did love him. The G Gio Urshela being included in that deal really hurt. Love Gio Urshela. I think Yankee fans totally fell in love with him. A great glove over there at third. A solid bat offensively. Nothing crazy, but um, you won't lose sleep over it. But sad to see a guy like him go and, and they trade. Both of those guys to Minnesota in exchange for Josh Donaldson, uh, shortstop Iser Kiner Falefa, and uh, catcher Ben Roydvit. So, what do we think of the deal, guys? I, I still don't understand the move. I, I, don't, I don't either. I understand wanting to shake it up. You know, Josh Donaldson's not a bad player, but you're taking on his entire salary for next, and he's going to be here for the next two, three years. Donaldson's old two years, fifty million. Yeah, so it's, I don't understand that move for them. Also, trading Gio. Gio was a beloved part of that team, and he was one of those guys where it's like if he has a better season at the plate, they're saying like, "Oh, you can make a run here." And I feel like his glove is definitely better than Glaber Torres. I feel like even though Glaber has a higher potential with his bat, higher ceiling, I feel like if you're choosing between those two, I would choose Gio Urshela honestly out of those. And then also, I just thinking what happened later on with the Twins. They go on and they sign Carlos Correa, which is an option the Yankees had. It's, they basically opened up that move for the Twins to take on Donaldson's salary, so I just I don't understand the move for that. These moves just show you how, how highly they think of Anthony Volpe and Peraza, their two top shortstop prospects. I mean, there's a lot, of, especially on Volpe, that he's a Jersey kid, he's from the area, grew up a Yankee fan, idolizing Derek Jeter. There obviously is going to be a lot of pressure with him, and that kind of move was indicative of the fact that that is their plan long-term for shortstop. That's why they didn't pursue Correa on a long-term deal. They didn't pursue Trevor Story. I mean, look at the deal Correa guy. I mean, like, why couldn't they could do it? Well, that's what a lot of Yankee fans complain about, that why could not that not have been done? Well, here's my take on it. And that when the trade initially first happened, I, I was pretty upset as well. The move still seems uh, to, be, uh, to be weird to me, but I understand the premise to it. I think we all as Yankee fans, we've grown up. I mean, I saw a championship in 2009. We saw the latter part of, uh, of where this team still had the mindset to spend at all costs, do whatever it takes to win a championship. Uh, sometimes it's spending stupid money, but it's all about the mindset in order to spend and, and do whatever it takes to win a championship. And that, that's just not the case. We still have to adapt to it, but it's just not the case under uh, Hal Steinbrenner. I mean, we have to get under the concept that Hal Steinbrenner is not his father. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. Uh, people forget how many bad deals George Steinbrenner made and if he wasn't banned from baseball in the early 90s, would the core four in that 90s dynasty have happened or would have they been traded away and, you know, the hobgob moves to, to try and keep on winning or whatnot. But I think, so I think those guys, Correa and all those guys, I don't think they're, they were going to happen despite all the reporters leaking rumors and all that sort of, I don't think the Yankees were super hot on them. Um, it, it, the deal is weird. This Minnesota deal is weird, but some parts of it make sense. Uh, Donaldson, aside from him 
uh, you know, not being a great guy, to put it nicely, here on air. Um, I'm sure him and Cole, uh, they even said it in interviews, they've put aside their differences, and I don't care how good or bad are you of a guy if you help the team win, winning cures everything, as they say. But uh, he's not the best offensive bat that he used to be, but he still gives you plenty of pop. Uh, last year, he had an 857, uh, 847, 857 OPS, something like that, which would have ranked third on the Yankees team behind Judge and Stanton, which is the offense is absolutely what this team needed. Last year, the, if Judge and Stanton were injured, particularly Stanton was injured, uh, I believe, around April, uh, late April, May, he was injured for a time. Uh, the, the offense, really, they couldn't buy a run at all whatsoever. Um, so you had the era, too, where there was the replacement players coming up from the minors with all the injuries last year as well. Uh, they just couldn't buy a run at times, and so they really needed offense. Donaldson gives you that. You, you trade a little bit of defense for offense. Geo had to be included in that deal uh, because how much trade value does Gary Sanchez really have at this moment? Yeah. So, I mean, you had to that trade had to hurt a little bit for the Yankees. Uh, Iser Kiner Falefa makes this team more athletic. Something else that the team needed on offense last year. Didn't steal a lot of bases. The Yankees didn't operate in small ball. Kiner Falefa can give you that. Um, he'll give you solid uh, offense, nothing great, um, but it's more the defense you're acquiring him for. He's a nice, good, solid stopgap that they have at shortstop that you can trust as defense. Defensive stud if they have to. Uh, if some, if Volpe or Peraza could potentially get called up later on in the season as well, kind of Falefa as the versatility can move to third or second as well. Um, they'll move around. I'm sure these guys won't be set in if that kind of scenario uh, pans out. And then the catcher, Ben Roydvit, who, of course, in traditional Yankee fashion, gets an oblique injury as soon as he comes over. What what Yankee offseason isn't complete without a spring training injury? So the catching depth is going to look really bad the longer he's out. Uh, it's just him and Higashioka. And then the, the minors, there's not much because Rob Brantley's gone. And so the, the catching situation, I think, could be really troubling for the Yankees if they don't make more moves right now. But once Roydvik comes back from injury, I, there's a lot of interesting things to like about him. He's got some offensive pop. A lefty bat, a solid defense behind the plate, but we'll see what comes of that. Um, so I think the deal is weird, but I like certain parts of it. I think it can potentially turn out well. And th that's a move for how the Yankees are operating now. They're betting on their prospects, and it's a lot of pressure for those guys. Now, the, the, the ask, before I go on that point, the, the part about Correa... Listen, three years, $105 million. Correa, Correa took that deal because no one else was, was out there. Whether Seager and the other guys had been signed or the market had just moved on to other things at this point. None of the big market teams are fishing around Correa. So he got the average annual value on that deal for less years. So he'll still be paid north of $35 million, But he has three years and an opt-out in each of the first two seasons of the deal. Uh, so he has flexibility because, honestly, that really, Carlos Correa is really just going to be the attraction for the Twins this year. I don't really think they go too far this year at all. Um, so especially the way the playoffs are, you think that the AL East is going to be strong. 
Uh, the AL Central, the, pro the, the White Sox are there. Um, the Indians are always, uh, or now the Guardians, uh, they are always a pretty solid team uh, as well. I don't think the Twins will be much this year. And Carlos Correa is just the attraction. But honestly, that deal, for Yankee fans complain about that, that deal. Why couldn't we do this deal? Three years, 105 minutes, only three, three years. He was not ever going to sign that sort of a deal for a big market team like the Yankees. If it, He'll sign a deal like that for the Twins, but if the Yankees were coming to the table, it's going to be 10 years, $350 million. So, well, they do have the money, but it's not. It, Hal Steinbrenner doesn't want to spend it. And there's an argument for it, and I get it, that three out of the top five Yankees uh, prospects right now are shortstops. So they're going to bet on them, but uh, if the, other, the flip side is, is you're not locking down that position, and if Volpe or Peraza or one or two of them don't pan out, this team's really going to be set back a couple of years, and that's a lot of pressure uh, to put on these guys so early on. I know Volpe draws Derek Jeter uh, uh, comparisons, but even he, the way Jeter even came into the team, that's not the way the, the team was operating. Jeter got his shot because uh, of uh, an, injury. Short, the, an injury, really. Yeah, guys ahead of him were getting an injury, and you know, use the next man up. So it's not that it's not that way here. I guess if you're Volpe, it gives you confidence that the organization believes in you so much. But there is a crazy amount of pressure for him to develop and for him to develop quickly uh, in order to come up in the next year or two and, and be the, and eventually grow into an all-star talent at a premium position that the Yankees really need some help in right now. I think it's good that they move Torres over to second. He's a lot better there defensively. He gets out of his head. I think he'll unlock his bat a little bit more. Um, now will be the fight of what you do with Torres and LeMahieu there. If they if they trade Torres, I'm not totally opposed to that either. If they can get some starting pitching, this team badly needs another starting pitcher behind Garrett Cole. I was just thinking off the top of my head, like who's really behind Cole in that rotation? Would you just pick up Desi Garcia? Luis Severino looking like I don't think they were really built very well this offseason starting pitching. And just lineup wise, I feel like they didn't really do much effort. They didn't have much effort to fix their starting lineup or their rotation. Like they they made that one move with Donaldson. It's just like what else are you gonna do with Rizzo? And then you brought in Jack. I just I, it was a bad offseason. Rizzo, I must say though, I think I get it. He's not Freddie Freeman. He's not Matt Olson. But I actually do think that is a solid pickup because he's a lefty bat, which the Yankees need. Because it's pretty even with Rizzo, it's still a pretty righty heavy lineup. I think. I think that'll be a pretty decent pickup. I think the fan base will like it, but I do get it. He's not Matt Olson. I think that would have been a good move for the Yankees. The thing with Matt Olson is you're going to you're going to give up Volpe. You have to give up. No, they wouldn't have. And, and they were. You know, never done that. No, they they. I would. Torres would have been involved in the deal. Peraza. I would have done a deal for Olson and uh, one of the uh, the the Oakland Athletics pitchers or uh, or and you do that or you're going after um, their catcher. And now you, you acquire two. I don't think the Yankees would go that uh, as much as I'd say that would be an option now that they did the, the move with the Twins. But just like trying to look back on that hypothetical situation, they wouldn't go for two catchers in an offseason acquiring them in trade. So I would have done Olsen and either Manaya or Montas. Probably Manaya in that situation because you'd already have to give up so much uh, for Olsen. I mean, you could, could have done a, a package with Torres 
Peraza would have to be included, um, and probably some of the pitchers. I would definitely would think so. He's young. He's young. He's on the younger side. Even though he struggled, he's younger. Uh, he's cost controllable, which is like candy for small market teams. And he's got a ceiling that he can expand to still. I mean, he's still, what, only 24? So, I mean, there's still a lot to uh, capitalize on in terms of his ceiling and his performance. So, uh, he's a very tradable asset. And I'm just looking at, like, both the trades the A's made. So, like, the trade Chapman and the other trade Olsen. And every single piece in the trade that they got back was always a prospect. They didn't get anything. And Chris Bassett. And Chris Bassett. They were, it was all prospects. So, I'm just thinking the way the A's are, like, I don't think they would have done a favor. I feel like they would have wanted, hey, give us both and we'll just make it a little bit. I mean, that had to be the, that had to be the ask. Otherwise, they, uh, would they wouldn't have done it, I think. Yeah. So Rizzo, to me, is fine. I like Anthony Rizzo. It's yeah. a nice guy. It's, it'll be fine at first base, but I emphasize the word fine. That's the way the Yankees try, like to move in the last couple of years. It's fine. In my opinion, I mean, really, when, when Rizzo was acquired last summer, was there a series other than the Marlins series that really screamed, oh, my God, we got to keep him? I mean, at this point, it just wound up like we wanted to keep someone. It's not that the Yankees, I, I don't want to say cheap, because they're, they're spending money. The payroll's now standing at $250 million. But they're always going to the bargainer options or uh, the lesser. If you, you had those three left-handed first basemen, Freddie Freeman, Matt Olson, and Anthony Rizzo, they're going to spend money, but it's going to be maybe on the lesser of those three and one that's going to be slightly cheaper. So, yes, they're spending money, $16 million a year, for Anthony Rizzo, but are they spending it the, the wisest? No, I think Rizzo, uh, he, other than the Marlins series, did he give you, uh, did he really scream like, oh my God, we got to keep him offensively? He'll give you solid defense, but it was starting to decline. Yeah, you saw it, it was bad for Duckman. I mean, he was the COVID season, I don't really count, but he didn't really, he didn't really, he wasn't amazing that year, and then last season, he, you saw it, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't Anthony Rizzo that he had used to be, so you could see the decline definitely happening with him, and so, you know, it was a three-year deal he got? Two years, two 30, years. Uh, 32 million. Two years, 32 million, so you're hoping that he's good for these next two years as the lefty bat in your lineup in the middle of the order, really, to, like, help you a bunch, and I mean, his defense is still pretty good, but, like, I don't, I don't see... How Rizzo is it? like? I don't see how you see Rizzo having a better year than he has the last two years. Another move the Yankees made recently was sending Luke Voigt to San Diego for Justin Lang. Yeah. And Justin Lang is someone that I think that they kind of like because he seems to be someone that has high velocity, but he's a ways away from the yeah, major. So, young. so yeah. that to me seemed more than anything as kind of like a salary dump. I know Luke Voigt mm -hmm. only makes like five million a year, but also the fact that the Yankees are kind of making trades to get rid of salary that's not very characteristic of the Yankees because. In their history, we've always known them as being a team who will spend whatever we have to spend, just whatever it takes to win. Well, it's also more of just having a surplus of that like position, mm -hmm. just that kind of like player. He's power riding that. You got Stanton, you have Judge. I mean, you don't sure. need another. You don't need Luke Voigt. And since you re-signed Rizzo, you have Lemay, who can also play first. So I felt like that move. Yes, I think it was also like a move to like move some salary, but it was also like he had nowhere to play. He had nowhere to play. We're, not going to be the DH at Stanton's spot. It's like, let's get a prospect here. Kind of. Yeah, and also, I mean, injuries have really derailed Luke Voigt's career. That's also hurt. He's making, he's going to make $8 million next year, and having $24 million between Rizzo and him tied up in one position 
whether the Yankees, the way they used to operate to now, I mean, it's just not practical business-wise either way to have that much money tied up into one position on your payroll. So it, it makes sense to trade Shane to see him go. Uh, but yeah, you look at this Yankees roster and there you just see a hole really missing. I mean, uh, we don't even mention center field, which will Aaron Hicks again the year long, every year. It's the annual discussion, can he stay healthy? And then it's going to be the guardy party. We'll probably see that. Yeah, when's he resign? That's going to happen in the next couple of days. And I think they really just need to let him go. He's 38 now. They need to do. They should have done something this off season to try and lock down that position more. It's really jealous of the Mets with the Starling Marte move. I thought that was great. I wanted that for the Yankees. Uh, lock something down at least for the next couple of years at that position. Um, a, a guy who's healthy, who's really good last year for the A's. Uh, I don't think they can really rely on Aaron Hicks out there. Uh, shortstop will forever be a question mark. Yes, I know you have this short, uh, this stop gap, but it'll forever be a question mark until Anthony Volpe or Oswald Peraza come up and start, uh, hopefully, start playing fantastic and lock down the position. And then you know the, there's issues of will Torres be better than he was last year? I think it was the last year only had five home runs. Uh, two years after he had 38. Um, you know, all that sort, all those sort of conversations come up. And then the starting rotation. I mean, Severino has not had a full season since 2018, hasn't pitched since 2019 at all whatsoever. So can you can't rely on him to be a number two. Jordan Montgomery, can, he's pretty good, but is he going to be a number two kind of guy? I always think he's a number three in the rotation, a guy you like to have around, but... Is he going to be absolutely transformative uh, on a playoff team? He's a glue guy. I think that's a good way to describe it. Um, I mean, Nestor Cortez, guys like those, uh, and that's going to be their, your fifth spot. Um, Domingo Armand, when he comes back from injury, that I mean, that fills third spot. Jamison Tyon is inconsistent. He's had times where he's had stretches last year. He was pretty good, but been inconsistent so the question is what they're I mean you got to fill something there in that rotation I, I, I they're right now the fourth best team in the AL, AL East one that confused me in their stats is Michael King I feel like there's a lot of times with him that I see some like signs of oh this guy has a lot of talent but then I don't really know where he fits I don't know how consistent he can be yeah absolutely I, I think he, they, they might he might get more of an expanded role in the bullpen for sure. Um, I wonder if they wind up doing some moves where they trade some people from the bullpen as well and have a little bit of shakeup there, although that was the least part uh, to worry about this team, the way they were playing last year. That bullpen was pretty good um, until Britain's gotten injured. Uh, they have $32 million tied up into Chapman. That's going to be off the books after this year, which would be a huge relief Um as the, that that frees up a lot of money for them to do either something at that position or moving all around. And then, of course, keep in mind the way the Yankees have operated, too, rather than adding big con, they haven't added big contracts. Um, they got Aaron Judge's contract extension coming up that we still have no news on that. I don't know if you'd love going into the season, uh, not locking that down. I understand they'd want to see another season of him having full health. But to have him walk to free agency um, is a dangerous proposition, um, especially if he has a, another really good year. 
and it's going to cost a lot more. assuming he stays healthy and he does what he's supposed to do but I part of me agrees with you but part of me also wants to see okay let me make sure he can get another full season where he does what he's supposed to do and the reason I would say that also is there's a lot of complaining about the Yankees don't get this guy the Yankees don't get this guy I think Garrett Cole is an example of a guy where the Yankees really are zeroed in on keeping someone or signing someone in the free agent market I think they are willing to do that so I think if they look at him and they say he's the face of the franchise, he has another good season, we want to make sure he's here long term. I think in that case, they would be willing to go the extra mile to keep him. Well, that's the thing is, is there's the risk in that if you wait this year to see if he's completely healthy once again and he does really good, it's going to cost you some more dollars than if uh, you try and do it now, which it'll still cost plenty. Um, but will it be the same amount of years and sort of money as it could be potentially next year if he has another really good year? Or the flip side is he once again winds up into some injury trouble and you can sign him for a little bit cheaper next year. So you run that risky game where you can either look like a fool or a genius depending on which kind of choice you make and what transpires uh, this year out of it. Um, so even if he gets like injured this year and has, but he's still productive, he goes onto the open market. Somebody's gonna come in and give that, give him a big contract. Absolutely, when healthy, he's one of the probably top ten player in all of baseball. Even if he's hurt like this year, and you and the Yankees think they can get him on a bargain, I don't think it's gonna happen. Like, there's no, there's even if unless he just plays a full season, it's really bad. That's the only way you're gonna get him on a bargain. And how much focus do you think? the activity or lack of activity the Yankees do, or even the Mets, any big market teams do, how much do you think they think about someone like Juan Soto coming up to free agency in a couple of years? I know it's a couple of years away. The Mets have that circled on their calendar. I don't know. I don't think the Yankees do. But you have to think about it. Juan Soto, a couple of years from now, he goes on the free agent market. If he keeps playing the way he's playing, he's a pretty young guy. I don't know. He was like 22 years old. Yeah. Yeah. He'll cost you at least $50 million a year. I mean, if the Mets just gave Scherzer $43 million, I could definitely see Soto getting $50 million a year. They probably have it in their books. We can't overdo our payroll now because in a couple of years, we're going to have to try to go out and get this guy. Oh, well, yeah, and I think I wonder if with Aaron Judge, there'll be some more desperation surrounding the Yankees like there was when the Mets first acquired Francisco Lindor, and there was a desperation to get him on a contract extension before opening day, and then it was a whole big hoopla right before the day before and they finally uh, they made the extension uh, I wonder if there'll be that sort of desperation in the next couple of weeks right before the end of spring training Fan, I'm a little worried about that. I don't want that to 
Yay. Yay. Let's, uh, on that note, let's move over to the Mets now, who, uh, re who they've had, in my opinion, a really good offseason. Uh, I think they could have used another impact bat, um, but they made a big move acquiring Chris Bassett from the Oakland Athletics. Uh, I think that was a, a fantastic move. They have a really good rotation. You got the big money move for Matt Scherzer. You already have a very dominant one-two punch with Scherzer and DeGrom. Uh, now you have Chris Bassett, Marcus Stroman still around, and as well as Carlos Carrasco. I'm sorry, Stroman went to the Cub. That's correct. Um, they, so you have um, you have Bassett there that basically replaces Stroman. You got Carlos Carrasco, and they certainly like Peterson coming out of the minor leagues um, every now and then. So he didn't look very good yesterday, though. Yeah, no, yeah. You got Walker, Taiwan. Taiwan Walker as well, who had a good first half of the year last year uh, and then fell off in the second half. So the Mets have a pretty a pretty good rotation, in my opinion, to really compete what's going to be a good division. Um, I, I think them and the Braves are, are really going to be an interesting two-horse race at the top of the NL East. I, I think what's I think I'd give them really an A minus in the off season. I think the only other thing they could have done, Nick Castellanos would have been a fantastic acquisition for them. You would have gotten an A plus plus off season, um, but instead he goes to the Phillies. Uh, I think this this team, this Mets team, was missing just one more bat. Um, what they do in right field, of course, Michael Conforto is still out there on the market, so he still theoretically could uh, re-sign. Uh, but for now, they're leaving him out in the cold. Um, they upgraded. They brought in Starling Marte. Uh, of course, most of this done before the lockout. Um, Mark Hanna, all these moves go under the radar thanks to the 90-day lockout or whatever it was. Eduardo Escobar as well. So they've done really well adding. I just think they needed that one bat. Uh, they got a couple of uh, smaller kind of moves in the bullpen. Um I believe they they also brought back that Brad Hand I think as well into the bullpen. Um, I know they I I think they got a couple of not crazy acquisitions yeah. in their bullpen, but um, Adam Montavino was one the the former Yankees legend Adam Montavino. I could strike out Babe Ruth. Um, so Adam Montavino's there now. I think losing Aaron Loop was a big. Um, was a big loss, but I still think they probably need needed another impact bat and another uh, another bullpen pitcher. Um, Chasing Shree. But the name I had my eyes on was Andrew Chasing the whole offseason, and I was like, if you get this guy in the bullpen to set, and I was also like said Nick Castellanos or even Kyle Schwarber. I mean Kyle Schwarber less because he's but just that bat, I felt like was very necessary for this team, and they just didn't get it. Yeah. Like now you got to rely on like, is Dom Smith going to be healthy this year? Is Dom Smith going to have a really good year? You got to rely on that. What's up with McNeil? Is he going to play the outfield instead of two? Because you have to know. It's it's there's a lot of things they can do, but it's also like a lot of the issue that the Yankees have too is like, if this guy performs like he used to. All the moves they made on the field, I think, were great. But in many ways, I feel like Buck Showalter becoming the manager was the mm -hmm. best move they made in the offseason. Because you hear a lot of times about the culture changing. I think a lot of people just brush that off and say, yeah, whatever, culture. But I think it really doesn't matter. There was a, there was a mentality 
for a lack of mentality in the team that really needs to be changed. And just from what I've been reading about the workouts they have and their focus on winning, I think that really, even more so than Scherzer, I think that could have been the best move they could have made this offseason. Well, something with Buck specifically is he is no distractions, no BS. It's straight, like, we're going out here and we're going, you know, like, last year you saw, like, the Mets were doing, like, things in, like, uh, fielding practice. They were celebrating, like, their world, like, a celebrating, practicing their celebration for, like, a World Series or whatever during practice. You saw that and you're like, yeah, you're doing that. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> but now with Buck, you're not going to see that stuff. Buck, they're practicing pop-ups with the crowd noise on 100. <laughs> Buck is like the guy that's like, he's that force, he's that real like leader kind of guy. You can see with Rojas. So yeah, I think you're saying they should have been more than maybe necessary to make this decision. Yeah, I think there was certainly a criticism around the in-game management of Luis Rojas last year, costing him some games, pitching changes, all the sort of stuff that we criticize around the manager. Bring in Buckshaw Walter, who I mean, knows the game, is very experienced, but of course it'll be the conversation. Is he open to analytics? Of course he is. He said that. Uh, before, um, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see the difference that he brings. Keep in mind, he has been out of the game for quite a couple of years, um, being in the uh, Yes Network studio booth, um, so interesting to see, is does he pick up right where he left off after a couple of years off uh, when he was the uh, Baltimore Orioles manager, um, so that's also an interesting point, how he adjusts coming back to managing the day-to-day aspect of it and all that sort of stuff but he's uh, to go to your point I mean absolutely correct I mean he's he's quite a he's really experienced really successful and maybe can uh, to translate from last year's Mets maybe translates uh you know because of the way he manages the way he makes moves the way he can maybe maximize some talent pitching changes uh, made in game maybe gets you five to ten more wins and that can totally uh change a season I think the NL East is going to be tight, especially toward the top. I think it's really going to be the Mets and the Braves right at the top of the division. Uh, you see the way the Braves have moved, getting Matt Olson. Um, uh, they uh, they brought back Eddie Rosario, I think. Ronald Acuna Jr. is coming back from injury, as well as Mike Soroka, and they won uh, they won a World Series without those guys. And now you're going to have those guys back. Just makes that uh, that much more scarier. Um, so that's going to be a really interesting uh, division. But let's go to uh, a couple of moves uh, around the league um, outside of things. I have some news, by the way. This will be quick. The, um, the Falcons are trading Matt Ryan to the Colts. Oh, wow. Big move. Wow. That's, I thought the Colts would go for Jimmy Garoppolo. Uh, I thought that was going to be a move for them and then eventually build out in the draft later on in the quarterback position. But... They go out and get Matt Ryan. Interesting. A little bit like a Philip Rivers move from a couple of years ago. Uh, we'll see if it works out this time. A much better offensive line for Ryan to work with as well as weapons. Uh, you'll have um, Michael Pittman Jr., um, T.Y. Hilton when he's healthy, Jonathan Taylor uh, to work with in the backfield as well as a great offensive line uh, and a pretty solid defense in a relatively weak AFC South. So a really interesting NFL news nugget there. And Atlanta's getting a third-round pick back. And it didn't cost them that much, uh, so that's pretty good. Uh, pretty good deal for the Colts there, in my opinion. We'll see if Matt Ryan can be a lot better than what he's been recently. Um, but going back over to baseball and the moves around the league, um, the big one, of course, we mentioned uh, Matt Olson going over uh, to the Braves, and then he gets an eight-year, $168 million extension. 
And then that whole saga with the Braves there, Freddie Freeman uh, then leaves to go back home uh, to Southern California, signs with the Dodgers on a six-year, $162 million contract. I know everybody was pissed. Oh, the Braves let go the face of their franchise. They did that. Freddie Freeman leaves, all that sort of stuff. I think that whole sequence was a great bit of business for the Braves. Changed my mind. For me, personally, I don't blame the Braves. Like, like they gave him, five, I think the offer was five years, 140. So, he got, what was it, six years? Six, 162. Six, 162. So, I think they gave him one more mil per year average annual salary, and then, but he got one more year from the Dodgers. And I think that one year was the thing that was, like, the deal breaker for him. I want that six-year guarantee. Like, I, I need that. And so, I just... I don't see what the Braves did wrong here. They they made a good move in getting Matt Olson. You know they're going to be still a contender, obviously with the team. They haven't like you can't really blame them for what they did with Freeman. I mean, everybody. If you're caught up on sentiment, of course you're. Oh, Freddie Freeman. He's been the face of the franchise the last ten years. You just won a World Series with him, and you don't re-sign him and do all this and do all that. I think it was a great bit of business that. Uh, Matt Olson now on this eight-year extension and then this six-year deal uh, with uh, Freddie Freeman to the Dodgers. The Braves and the Dodgers, they'll have both of these guys until their age 38 season. Except the Braves will be getting this first baseman and Matt Olson for the next 10 years while it's only six for the Dodgers. Freeman being 32 and Matt Olson uh, being uh, 27, 28 years old. Uh, you're going to have Olson through the prime of his career um, who basically gives you a, the, relatively the same production that Freddie Freeman does. Olsen hit 39 home runs for 111 RBIs last year. So, they got young Freddie Freeman there. Yeah. And now just to lock down the position and move along there at first base, I think it was a, a great bit of business for pretty much the same amount of money that uh, Freeman's getting at the Dodgers. And, you know... Who cares about sentiment? I'm sorry, this is a business, and you know the Braves did a great bit of uh, of business on that part of the field. And then, of course, there was Trevor Story signing a six-year, 140 million dollar deal with the Boston Red Sox, and there was momentum picking up that it was supposedly the Yankees and the Astros, um, the Yankees sniffing around. And I always thought that that was just cannon fodder to get more money out of the Astros or whoever else, I guess it turned out to be the Red Sox to get more money out of them. Um, I think that it's a bad, I don't think it's, oh my God, as doomsday as people make it out to be. Trevor Story's very good player. Um, uh, is he the greatest around? I mean, I think there's limits. There's a lot of question marks there. Again, as it is with every great Colorado Rockies player, is can they do it outside of Coors Field? Um for some players, they've been able to. For some, they've fallen off or been inconsistent here and there. So, interested to see uh, what that will be with him. Um, but the Yankees were never going to do that deal. Uh, I mean, what's that? Thirty million a year? Um, or twenty? My math is terrible. I think that's like twenty million a year, something like that. Um, I don't think they'd want to do that deal. We talked about with them how they're really betting on their prospects. Um, trying to save money that way. When these guys come up, they'll save money on that. They know they have to commit money to judge and all around the other spots on the field. So I get that makes sense. So 
the way you saw they're operating, the Yankees were never going to go that way. Um, but that's probably about the last place that you wanted to see um, Trevor Story go is yes. to Boston. So now uh, Story slides in at short and you move Bogarts over to second. Uh, this, the, they upgraded quite a bit. I think people are minimizing it, uh, these acquisitions. that I know Boston had a big loss with Hunter Renfro. Uh, he had a fantastic year last year. Um, so I lost Schwarber as well. So I get those are big losses, but... Uh, they're still going to be pretty good, and I think they can still be uh, slightly better than the Yankees. Uh, I think this team is still fourth best in the in the division. But um, yeah, that pretty much wraps up our baseball talk, and thus wraps up the show for the week. Thank you guys so much for joining on. Um, and yeah, take care, everybody. Have a good day. We'll see you right back here next week here on the Mike Sports Roundup.